Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Giovanni. This is Sam. And we're the hosts of SS Central. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, if you saw our previous episode, or listened to our previous episode, I should say, you saw that we have a new co-host that will be joining us for our first ever where there's a co-host and there's two people hosting the show. So Sam's here with us today, and we're going to be talking about the 2010 Chrysler 300. So uh, the Chrysler 300 has been around for a while. Um, I'm not really sure when the start date was. Let me just check really quick. I think it would be around for about 10 years because it's the 2010 yeah, I think so. I think they had an earlier model, too. That's why I'm just conflicted. Okay, so no, yeah, the Chrysler 300 is pretty old. Uh, seeing some back all the way to 1962. So the Chrysler 300 is, of course, nothing new. And it, it, it's gone through a bunch of variants, of course. You know, they released the 2021, and now we're in 2021. Yeah, so they've been producing it for a long time, and uh, let's see, we had Daimler-Benz, or Daimler-Chrysler as it was at the time, because they were, there was a whole debacle going on with the bankruptcy stuff. Uh, Daimler-Chrysler was producing it from 04 to 07, Chrysler LLC, which was, they weren't owned by any other company, they were Chrysler, and they had all their subsidiaries, it was being produced from 07 to 09. Then uh, Chrysler Group was still producing it from 2009 to 2014, but that's kind of conflicting because Fiat Chrysler kind of bought a stake in the company. If you remember the episode I did about the brand rundown, you remember that I said they bought or they kind of took a stake. I think it was either stake or they – no, they were merger. That's what it was. Can't, can't, get it, can't get it right. They were a merger. So Fiat and Chrysler merged. In 2007, yeah, no, it was 2007 or 2008 they merged. One of those years. I think it was 2008 they merged and became Fiat Chrysler. But they were they were actually known as FCA US LLC, which is pretty long. But that's kind of conflicting. But then it says uh, Fiat Chrysler USA LLC was producing the, the Chrysler 300 from 2014 to present day. So... I believe that Fiat Chrysler didn't start producing the name, the uh, any Chrysler products under Fiat Chrysler until 2014 because I think when they merged, I don't think they were a full merger. I don't think it was a full merger. I think Fiat just kind of took a stake in the company so they can because because Chrysler was already in a bad position. Um, if you listen to the previous the. Uh, the uh, brand analysis, they were already in a pretty rough position. They were in bankruptcy. Uh, the government was not, was kind of looking into bailing them out, but they weren't too sure because Chrysler was kind of a failing company. They weren't paying their employees and they weren't paying the uh, parts suppliers. So it was a whole debacle there too. But then Fiat stepped in and mer- kind of merged with them and it kind of, they, they kind of reconsidered bailing them out. I guess, you know, went through, they bailed them out. But I guess Fiat didn't start producing cars under Fiat Chrysler 
until 2014 onward. So now everything's produced under Fiat Chrysler, and the new one is under Fiat Chrysler, what they're being produced at. So that was a whole just kind of technicalities debacle thing I just kind of went on about. But the Chrysler 300, like, to answer that question, it's been around for a while. And But we're, we're just going to cover the 2010 model, not the 1962 onward and the the variance not the variance the trim levels but what do you have anything to say about the uh the chrysler 300 mm, not right now no okay uh let me go back to the don't section. have any opinions on it so, so far okay well but those can gonna... change pretty quick oh yeah yeah, here, here opinions change with the snap of a finger. Yes, they do. So, <laughs> yeah, you know a lot about that. But anyway, the 2010 Chrysler 300, I'm just going to say that the Chrysler 300, I won't refer to any certain, any, I won't refer to it as a certain trim level just because I'll be covering that later. But Chrysler 300, uh, from 2010, which was produced 10 years ago, uh, it's kind of depreciated in value uh, from eight. You know, I don't know what it sold new because it's not listed here, which I'll have to look up again. But it looks like the value of a Chrysler 300 has depreciated from 8,000 being the lowest used. You know, and that's, that's considering that it's in good condition. There's nothing really wrong mechanically in the interiors, you know, spotless. Uh, and that's that's still pretty pretty bargain price for one, but we'll discuss a lot about you know Chrysler's manufacturing. And I've already done a bunch of videos about that already, but we'll discuss about that later. Why the value is probably depreciated a lot, but the highest you can sell one for, the highest they'd recommend you sell one for, is about eighteen thousand dollars, which isn't too uncommon for one that's a low mileage, you know, still it's got a lot of life in the engine. The interior is still pretty good, you know, and we're, we're not talking about rips in the leather or problems with the electrical system or any of that. We're just talking about, it's still a good car, still almost showroom condition. That's the best you can get well, for it. Because again, I'll cover. Was well, I that? just Googled what they were, what they are, I guess what they're priced off of on the showroom. Um, this is off of the Kelly Blue Book website. So it says their retail price starts around $28,000, while the popular limited trims move the price just past the 36500 mark. But if you get the Hemi-powered 300C uh, Chrysler car, that starts uh, close to 39000 and... $39,000 and the all-wheel drives add adds about $2,000 to the um, base, baseline model, I guess. Right. So, like you just said, the, the more the more sportier you get, the higher it's going to be. But we're just going to go with the, the, the town car, or not the town car. The uh, We're going to go with the more family car kind of trim level where it's you know kind of like a, a v6 it's not as powerful but it's still got a little spunk to it but it's more it's meant more to be cheaper to own 
you know, not that expensive. You know, maybe you'd pull out a lease if you get it from the dealership. But like you said, not too much. Uh, it hasn't depreciated as much as it did from, you know, when it was on the showroom floor. But that depends on what condition you buy. If you buy it, you know, you in a used condition where, you know, it's kind of showing its age, you know, the engine's kind of getting up there in age or mileage, I should say. I mean, you could say age too, but it depends if it was kept outside. But if it was kind of kept in the garage and the engine's just showing that it's old, I mean, yeah, it's probably going to be 8,000 or under, depending on its mileage. Uh, but 18,000 is what it's listed here uh, on cars.com is the highest you could get for. And that might, that might be different. I mean, if you have uh, a 300 that's just been sitting in the garage all its life and it has, what, 2,000 miles on it, you could probably get what probably get a little less than what they had on the showroom floor for. I mean, I wouldn't see why not. I mean, it's still got its entire life left. It's, it's barely even been outside the garage or on the road that much. So uh, let's see. Okay. So the 300 of course is a, is a family car. So it's got four doors. It's a sedan. Uh, there again, there are different trims and we'll get in that later, but we're just focusing right now on the more economical family car. And of course, like I said, if you're buying this used, of course, it's going to be cheaper because they're older now. And some of them aren't in the best condition because they were family cars. So they were definitely used by family. So it's got probably most of them probably show signs of family use unless you buy the Hemi powered one, you know, that, that probably won't show a lot of family use because most families would just go for the one the lowest trim that's the cheapest but we're going to take an overview of the perform the good they have they have the format here of the good and the bad so you know kind of a clint eastwood movie or jesse wales type of thing going on here uh so the good performance it's got that big, beautiful Hemi V8 in there, and you can't go wrong with that 5.7 liter V8, which like I, uh, Dodge uses a lot. And another thing about Dodge is that you can kind of throw the, the Hemi in any Chrysler product that you want to be more sporty because uh, Chrysler owns the Hemi. Uh, I, think, I don't know if Hemi is a trademark because Hemi is a type of engine, hemispherical combustion. So I don't know. If Hemi is a trademark of Chrysler, I think it might or be a trademark of if, Chrysler. Yeah, you see, there's kind of a weird conflict here because Hemi, you you can find like really small displacement engines that are hemispherical combustion. So I don't know, maybe Hem, they just own the Hemi name because it's I guess it's more. I mean, it probably is. You know, the engines are probably hemispherical combustion, but they might just call it a Hemi because, or they might own a trademark of Hemi, but not the actual manufacturer, not the actual uh, type of hemispherical combustion. They might just have uh, the M, the logos of Hemi co copyrighted, but not the actual um, hemispherical combustion of an engine copyrighted. Well, I just googled it and so, it said uh, Chrysler, the Chrysler Hemi engine known by the trademark Hemi are a series of 16 and wow 16 and V8 gasoline engines built by Chrysler with the hemispheric 
combustion chambers, although Chrysler is most identified with the use of PEMI as a marketing term. So it sounds like what I'm getting right. off of this is it sounds like that uh, Chrysler trademarked Hemi for them and for them and Dodge because didn't I think Dodge and Chrysler combined together or something like that. But I think that's another episode or another podcast. Yeah, that'll have to be another episode on who, what's going on with the hem. What's going on with Hemi? Is it owned by Chrysler or is it not owned by Chrysler? Because it's kind of a weird, uh, uh, what's the word? It's kind of a weird, you know, I guess, uh, gray area. You don't really know who owns the term Hemi, if anybody even owns it, or if it's just, you know, something that Dodge likes to use. I mean, you don't see GM run around using that. So maybe it is copyrighted, maybe it isn't. But like you just said, we'll have to save yeah. that for another Like episode. if it is copyrighted, I could just go but, and say, I own Hemi. And just trademark that, but that's never going to happen. Yeah, no, it's highly unlikely that ever happening. But, like I said, it has the Hemi V8, and Chrysler can do that because, you know, they they may technically own it. But since Dodge is most affiliated with Hemi engines, Chrysler can do it to their Chrysler cars. And throw Hemi's in there because, you know, that, that's what they most associate with. And since, you know, Chrysler is Dodge, they just take the Hemi engines that they made for their Dodge Dodge subsidiary and throw them in their Chrysler cars. Which is, you know, kind of good because that's what GM was doing. I mean, during the 90s and the 2000s, early 2000s, of course, they had the 3800 series engine. They had the Series 1 and the 2, which is in my car. And they used that on a variety of their cars and SUVs. Because it, they, it was just cheaper to throw a different, uh, not a different, the same engine in every car, but with different, you know, with different uh, ratings or specs or uh, horsepower, I guess. Is it going down that way? Yeah, with different different cylinder setups, because I think the var- there were two variants. I think there was the one 3800, which was Series 1, which is the, the four-cylinder, and then the the second version, the uh, Series 2, was the six-cylinder V6. Well, that's what V6 stands for, six cylinders. But that that was that was really what they were using. They were kind of going for more of the, the V6 market. But oh, that's another episode, too. But like I said, that's what the Hemi is. It's just basically Chrysler's idea of the GM3000 engine or the other engines that they used, too. But uh, let's see. Now... With the exception of the Chrysler 300 all-wheel drive, the Hemi V8 trim and the family car trim came in rear-wheel drive. Um, not a lot of V6 cars are real, rear-wheel drive, which is, I mean, not good, but it's not bad. But this is some of the, this is one of the few V6 cars that are rear-wheel rear drive. I, I only think a lot of V6 cars are front-wheel drive because it's it. It's less strain on the engine, so it doesn't have to have an axle running all the way to the. You rear, have that drive. You have a drive. It doesn't. Have, you have rear wheel drive. You have a drive shaft going to your from your transmission to your back axle, and in your back axle there's something called a differential. That's the, basically a slip differential. Right. So if one wheel is, um, let's say that, let's say one wheel is in the mud and one wheel is on dry pa- dry pavement, 
the one with the less resistance on it is going to slip. So if that, that tire that's in the mud, it's going to slip there. The tire on the asphalt, it's not going to slip because it has much more resistance of slipping than it does in the mud. And with front-wheel drive cars, yeah, I don't like them. Granted, I'm being biased there a bit, I guess. But <laughs> um, front-wheel drive cars, you have you don't you have a transmission, yes, but you don't have a drive shaft going from the front of your car to the back of your car. You have two CV joints or CV axles, I should say, going from a transfer case on the front of your car, um, not front of yeah, this front of your car, uh, going from the engine to transmission, I guess you could say to a, to the CV joints, which go right to the front tires. You don't have anything going to the back tires, so that's basically what. Um, rear wheel and front wheel drive cars are but with four wheel drive cars or four wheel drive trucks whatever you want it whichever your preference is you can um you can have it in two wheel drive rear two wheel drive front uh that i think you can do that um or you can have four wheel drive if you get stuck or if you're in the snow but then they also have all wheel drive cars those cars are always in four-wheel drive. You can't take them out of them. You can't put them in two-wheel drive. Um, I don't even think they have a four-wheel low because they're always in all-wheel drive. So that's the differences, yeah, differences between four-wheel drive, all-wheel drive, two-wheel, front and rear. So if that makes any sense. Right. Oh, no, it does. It's just I think that the reason a lot of V6 cars are front-wheel drives is because the engines have less uh, horsepower. Probably have a lot of strain. Yeah, if they were re when they're rear-wheel drive. So they're it's really trying to, you know, make – it's tr really trying to keep the vehicle going and not stall because it has a lot of a lot of strain on it because it's trying to carry the car from, re from rear-wheel drive. But I guess if it's front, you know, there's a lot more power because, you know – the power goes right to the CV joints in the front and yep. spins those tires, and it's probably less strain if, instead of running a differential all the way to the back. Because yeah. if you have your drive shaft, so, that like normal drive shafts, I think are, I think it depends on the length of your car, really. Um, but with the length of your drive shaft, I think from what I've seen, not what I've seen, from what I've heard, it takes some power away because of the length of that energy has to um, has to travel through your back axle. So I'm thinking what, what you're, I'm piggybacking off of what you're saying. With the front-wheel drive cars or the less horsepower cars, they, they make them front-wheel drive because they don't have to transfer that power all the way to that back axle, and they have more power to the wheels up front because it can go directly from the engine to the transmission right to the tires. So with bigger engines, you can you can do all-wheel drive yeah, or four-wheel drive cars. So Or rear-wheel drive, too. Right. So there's a lot. I wouldn't say there's a lot more torque, but there's probably a little bit if you tweak it just right and throw the right parts in. You know, maybe if you put a new, uh, a new air new air intake system cold air intake you probably get a little bit better you'd power really but you'd have to, to get you a know, lot of power out of those small engines yeah i would i would suggest throwing a new ignition coil system with some upgraded plugs maybe new cold air intake uh possibly throttle body because that 
that you know it's modified so you, it's more of a performance uh setup where it sends more fuel depending on how much throttle you give it but uh, you need a lot of you need you need to really uh you really need to throw all those on at least that's what i did and well, i got with, a lot more torque but with the for different it's yeah every card is different you have to do with the newer cards you need a computer to, you can program them I don't know if they had the computers in this right. 2010 Chrysler, um, but I know with like the newer, like 2017s, 2018s, 2019s, they all have computers in them. Like they're all electronic from what I've seen because you have your fuel injection. If you have fuel injection, that's ran by a computer. It tells the car when to spray the fuel into mm -hmm. the cylinder housing, uh, when to ignite the spark plugs for the timing, when to, what to do with the timing, what the fire pattern is on the engine, and you, the only way you can modify that is to plug into the computer, get the software, download the software onto a computer or some type of device that you can change it with and do it that way. The older cars, like you were saying, you can put a new throttle body on there. But I think with like, um, for example, Chevy Impala, their 1968 Impala, those are all ran off of carburetors. You can get new carburetors, put those on there. And you can tweak those, or you can tweak the original carburetor and to turn those, there's a high idle jet, which adds more, more fuel to the air mixture in the carburetor and gives you a bit more power. Um, you can put new spark plugs in, that will give you a couple more horsepower. Like you said, you can do a new ignition coil system. On newer cars, I don't know, like 2010s, I don't know if you can do that or not. I personally don't know. I'm not into that stuff. I'm kind of into the older stuff, but I'm thinking it's more revolved around computers now because you have computers that run basically all your car. Your whole car is basically computers, I'm guessing. The only thing that I don't think is computers are your, um, your steering because that's a direct shaft to your steering, steering box and that turns the wheels whichever way you want them to go. I don't think you have a computer telling you where to steer, where not to steer, because that'll be probably a mess. But that'll be pretty funny if they ever do that. Well, I definitely agree. And cars have special computers called PCM, yeah, or like ECMs, you were saying. Or ECMs, uh, I think you, too. They call yeah, they, they call them a whole yeah. different deluge of things: ECM, PCM, whatever you say. It's really the same thing, but. They're, they're not like a big desktop computer because if you had a desktop computer in there, boy, you'd be in some real trouble with trying to get that thing fixed. But you can't really take a PCM or ECM or whatever you want to call it out and do it yourself. You have to send it to you know somebody who knows what they're doing. Or in my case, I'd have to send it to a company called ZZ Performance. And they will, they will, they will. Uh, I don't know how they do it. They hook it up to their computers and they go into the coding and they. They uh, whatever tune you select and have whatever parts you put in, uh, upgraded parts or performance parts, I should say, they'll tweak it to that that spec. But like you were saying, everything's computer controlled in modern cars. 2010, I'm not too, too sure about. They probably have uh, PCMs that control the mm -hmm. fuel injectors and probably a whole mess of things because I know that a lot of uh, Chrysler products uh in the 2000s were really high tech and that was yeah. one of their selling points with chrysler dodge products that they were really state-of-the-art for their time you know they had navigation uh i think they had serious some of them had sirius xm 
I don't know how many did, but I know some of them did. Some of them had Sirius XM. Uh, they had, you know, they still had the CD, uh, CD-ROM ports. I think they had the, the, um, the revolving one where you could put six in. But a lot of them were state-of-the-art for their time. So that was a really good selling point for Dodge at, the, at yeah. Dodge or Chrysler. Right. Um, that's why so a lot of people bought them. 2010 Chrysler um, interior review. And it says they have, for their radio, they have a AM, FM, six CD, six CD uh, player in there. DVDs, wow, they can watch movies, huh? DVDs, MP3 radios available with a touchscreen and a 30 gigabyte hard drive, which is pretty odd. Why would you want a hard drive in your car? The only way I can see you using that in a car is uh, to, what is it, to hold radio stations on in your car or, or things like that, which I don't know if they had XM in this because they're not saying, but. I kind of think they did. Uh, I kind of think XM was around in 2010. But like like what we said, we don't we don't really know the exact specs on it. We just have what's what we're looking at now. Yeah. We cuz yeah, we like you said, we don't really know, but I'm going to go out on a whim and say that they did because I remember my dad's old HHR was the LT. Um it had Sirius XM, but we didn't we weren't subscribed to it, so of course we couldn't use it, but it had it. So I'm going to just say it did, but I'm not sure. I'm just going to say it did just because Chrysler would have to keep up with GM's Sirius XM satellite radio because that was something that was really starting to emerge, and they didn't want to lose sales because they didn't have Sirius XM radio. Yeah, that was one of, the, I think, the big key factors to this car is you have the newer technology, and you're going up in the years with more technology. People are going to want that technology in their cars. Like nowadays, you've got you've got heated right. seats in your cars. My mom's car, you've got heated steering wheels. You've got um, cameras. You've got backup cameras you've got cameras to help you park you've got self parallel parking cars you've got all this technology that they didn't have in 2010 but they were starting to build up with the technology in cars so it's just all in the years that it's doing basically right and the more technology the more space is taken up in the engine bay which makes it yeah, harder to work on your own car newer cars you don't if like you want to do spark plugs on there. You have to take the whole ignition coil off of one spark plug to put a new spark plug in. Rather just do it yourself for like two hours, take it to the auto shop or the dealer that you got it from, and they'll have it done in 10 minutes. Granted, they know what they're doing because they've done it on a lot more cars than, let's say, you have or I have um, than a normal homeowner would do. Normal homeowners don't really do their own oil changes, air filters, and things like that. So they just take them to like a, a garage or the dealership that they get it, that they got it from that, ha- that they can do services and things like that on. But newer technology isn't really always the greatest when it comes to mechanics. No way. I mean, it's just, it's too yeah. much space that it takes up. And I like to think that a lot of cars pre-2009 uh, didn't have a lot of tech. I just I think they had some they had a, a lot of cars pre two thousand nine just had 
some tech, you know, it's just, it was a lot of sensors, you know, like O2 sensors, uh, coolant leak sensors, you know, stuff like that. All that great oil, oil no, life oil, sensors, tire you know, pressure sensors, all that like stuff. Your safety thing, like your ABS, tire pressure, oil sensor, temperatures, um, coolant level, if they have those. Temperature. Um, I don't know if a fuel gauge is, yeah. Battery voltage. Fuel gauges and things you know, like that. But in like the older cars, like the like the first cars, all you would have on there, like gauge wise, is miles per hour if they even had those, fuel, how much fuel fuel you had in your gas tank, voltage on your battery, uh, temperature of your radiator and coolant, and that was about it. You didn't have all these other gauges about low tire pressure or um, low oil, or you didn't have like radios or or dvd players or things like that in your car you just had the basic things you just had fuel uh heat voltage miles per hour that's it that's all you needed to do for your for those older style cars so those engines bays were much more spacious because they didn't have all this new all these new computers or anything like that all they had was the engine transmission basic drive line, basic drive, um, drive train and all that. And then there you go. There's your car. So compared to these newer days cars, your, your engine bays are crammed for space. So it's Mm -hmm. like, which one you want to go with? Well, a lot of the older sensors from like nineties to pre 2009, they were all pretty small and simple. You know, they weren't, these crazy uh, high tech sensors, you know, that require a computer to operate. A lot of these things were just thermostats and, uh, yeah. and gauges, you know, you know, it's like for the coolant and the oil, it was just, it was all just mm-hmm. simple thermostats. You know, if the metal got too hot, it would, it would, uh, it would move like a little, just, I don't um, know how exactly it was, but it would triple, it would trip it, send it back to the, the I guess it was either hooked up to the computer or the light and it would just send an electrical current back to that saying that it was getting too hot and you know it was it was just a simple power current going to it and if it reached a certain temperature it would tick and send an electrical current to the light yeah. saying you know your coolant's too hot or for instance it was a gauge it said you're you, have, you don't have enough oil left or no no your oil life is at zero or, or oil coming pressure to zero even. or maybe it's the like oil 20%. pressure gauges most of the older cars have oil pressure gauges but those are, that's basically just a line from the, I believe it's from the uh, bottom half of the engine block by the oil pan. And it just has a constant feed of oil pressure on it. And that tells you if your oil pressure is good or if your oil pressure is bad. So like that's another thing. If you have good oil pressure, that means your uh, uh, connecting rods, crankshaft, main bearings, connect the... Uh, the bearings on the connecting rods and all that, that's all getting lubricated real nice and that because the pressure is good in the current case. If it's, if your pressure is low, that means right. you're not getting as good of uh, lubrication as you should be. If that happens, then what may happen is your, your main bearings are going to get scarred. They're going to get worn and you're going to have a faulty engine. You're going to have a knocking either, or you're going to have, um, which I don't know if this happened too much. You're going to have a, your engine explode and shoot something out the side of it because 
there was something that failed and something, let's say, a valve dropped onto the top of the piston from the uh, piston head, and not from the piston head, the engine head, where all the valves are and things like that, if one of those valves fell out and jammed into your piston and your piston couldn't press up, but once it shot down, it was so scarred and everything that it would just wobble around in your uh, piston chamber, then that could really damage your engine. So that's what those oil pressure gauges were for in your older style cars. So they're pretty useful. You may think they're just right. uh, annoying to look at and not useful, but they there's a use for them. Look at them if you have oil, older style cars that have those. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, a lot of the old, the sensors pre-2000s, because when we entered um, 2010, we kind of had this worldview where everything needs to be digitized. You know, sensor, everything in a car needs to be digitized. There's no looking back. We can't use old analog ones because that's not okay. Everything just needs to be compute, computer controlled. And so then sensors from that weren't, old sensors that were analog sensors, you know, in like the, like I said, pre-2000 car, pre-2009 cars uh, were then digitized and, you know, then everything had to be controlled by a computer, which puts a lot more strain on the engine because it's a lot of, it's a lot more, a lot more battery has to drawn. take, a lot more voltage to have to the battery. But yeah, exactly. And then the, the alternator used to work harder to keep that battery charged to power all these electronics because if one thing goes, yeah, the whole car shuts down. Um, like, for example, so for that are that's power that's power being drawn from batteries a lot on plow trucks, like your normal, like let's say, uh, Ford F three fifty, and you have a plow on that. You need to get a special plow setup for that truck because that plow with those electronics that control your lift and your angle on there, though all those electronics that control those draws a lot more power than what would be drawn without a plow so you have to get two alternators put on and then another battery added to your original battery so because if you don't have that added on your battery is going to be your battery is going to go dead real quick and your alternator won't be able to keep up but if you have two alternators with two batteries you should you will have enough more than enough juice i think to run the plow's functions on there so it's just it Basically, I guess what we're trying to say is we're, everything comes back to um, how much power you can draw out of that battery and how much power that alternator is putting out. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. You have so many amps coming out from that your computer and your car is drawing that if you have so many uh, things running in your car, like let's say you have the radio running, you have the air going, you, which that is controlled by electronics, that's your thermostat. You have the screens going, lights on, just everything going in your car. Your alternator may not be able to keep up with that, with that uh, amperage draw, especially on these small horsepower engines. If you can't spin that alternator fast enough to keep that battery charged much more, much higher than um, what's being pulled, your car is going to die out because your battery's dying. Then you're going to need to charge your battery or get a jump from another car which is a pain in the butt to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it's like we said, you know, if you go back to analog sensors and you'd have stuff and you make these sensors and all these computer 
a lot, a lot of these computer controlled parts uh, draw less electricity or draw no electricity and just do away with them, you know, you'll see a lot more, you see yeah. a lot better performance in your vehicle. That's why you see on normal race cars, like NASCARs. Mm-hmm. All the only electronics I see when they, when either I watch videos on it on YouTube or stuff, the only electronics I see are the gauges. That's all I see. Like everything else is just engine, drivetrain, that's it. And you've got that roll cage and that's it. There's no real lights on the car or anything. There's no real headlights, brake lights, anything like that. Not even turn signals. Like, granted, all they do is go around the circle a bunch of times, but they're keeping it basic. Right. So, we'll move on to the next part, which is automatic transmission operation. Now, a lot of Chryslers and even GM products, I don't know about Ford, Ford maybe, uh, or other international brands, you know, like Audi, Chrysler, not Chrysler, Audi, Kia, Hyundai. You know, I don't know about. That. I think they had it too, but a lot, a lot of stuff that was popular. Uh, one thing that was popular back then and still is today, um, and is it, it, it's 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 in some new cars today. I would say I think I've I've seen it in a couple cars, but a lot of but most cars were either made. Automatic transmissions, whether they be manually control, analog control, or digital control, uh, they had something that was kind of an in between. You know, if you let's say you wanted an automatic, but you also wanted a manual, but you couldn't find, uh, you know, wiggle room for both. Well, they introduced uh, auto manual as far as far back as you know. I think the late 80s, I think they started really popularizing the auto manual transmission. Might even been longer, I don't know. But I'm just taking a rough estimate because I'm not even sure how long auto manuals have been around for. But yep, I know my, my car has one. Has it too, so uh, basically I think auto- most cars now have it. I think it's pretty popular now. I think, yeah, I think most cars have it. But I think they have it more of either you shift on the shifter up and down or left and right, or you have it on the button. You have it yeah, on button. My dad's steering truck, wheel. He has it on the gear selector. You can either shift it up or shift it down. Right. Which is good. I mean, if you want, if you need better braking, which I do use my manual a lot to for better braking, it's always good to have the auto manual transmission because. Um, you can manually select gears, at least for me, I can. I don't know. Maybe some other cars are computer controlled and won't shift if you're in a certain speed. But I know that most cars before a lot of digitization of everything, you could just shift down. It would immediately shift down. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, the computer wouldn't stop the vehicle from shifting if it was too high in RPMs or too low. And you can use that to shift down if you need to brake. If you need to use your engine as a brake instead of your brakes, because if you use the engine brake, it would be braking for you, and you wouldn't have to wear your brakes out as fast. You would be able to slow down by just That's what most uh, by shifting do. down and letting the engine. When you hear semis, uh, they call it J braking. When you hear them going down hills, and it's just like, and you hear that, that's engine braking. They're downshifting their semis to slow down much quicker than what their brakes would do. Also, they use that so they don't wear their brakes out. What they're doing is they have like a switch that right. turns on It's in semis. It's an air-powered thing. 
because they have air tanks for their air brakes. They turn that switch on, the air rushes in, turns the J brakes on, and as they're shifting down the gears, the engine is slowing down the speed of the truck much more than what your brakes would do. We do it in our truck when we're going camping and there's a curve in front of us and we're going downhill. We don't know what's beyond that curve. My dad sticks it in manual. He leaves it in one gear. Sometimes he downshifts. And I can hear the RPMs fling up. But that's just because the engine is, you downshifted it in a gear, downshifted one gear than what the gear you were in, which adds, I guess, I don't know if it's more stress or what to the engine, but it makes your engine slow you down much quickly, much more quicker than um, your normal brake pads or brake shoes, whatever you want to call them, would do. So that's all uh, engine brake is, or in semi's terms, J braking. Right. So yeah, like you said, the the semis have a J brake or yeah. Jake brake, however you pronounce it, uh, which slows them down. But and in the automatic transmission, it's kind of the same concept. Uh, for me, it's not really com it's not computer controlled, and if I need to shift down, it will, and without hesitation, because the computer isn't deciding if it's too high or too low in RPMs to shift. So when you do that, and even I think in this the Chrysler 300, you could do the same. Uh, I don't. I don't think if you were on a hill, I don't think it would help as much as if it was a semi J brake. But if you were coming up to a curve and you shift into a lower gear, the, the vehicle will reduce its gear to, to a smaller one. And the engine will start to, you know, kind of jump up in RPMs a little bit, but then start to gradually decrease mm -hmm. because it's slowing down the car. That's at least what happens for me. Cause sometimes I'll be traveling 40. Then I shift down in a second which is a you know a good range. I mean, I normally shift out of second to third at around 40 if I'm, you know, traveling a cat if I'm not, you know, giving it full throttle and I'm giving it, you know, yeah. like 30, 50, I'll shift up. But if I'm traveling at 40, I need to slow down because I'm about to approach a sharp curve, I'll shift into second and just tap the brakes a little bit. I, I barely even touch the brakes because the car slow slows down mm -hmm. very fast because of the engine brake. So I don't really even need yeah. to touch my brake if I don't need to. So that's basically the purpose of the auto manual. Um, it's more of a – It was. I, I don't really know if it was uh, for braking or if it was really just for sport, you know, to to kind of feel more like you're driving well, a manual also, too, without the clutch. Is if you're in, like, uh, bad weather conditions. Like, let's say there's a lot of snow on the ground and you're driving on the road, you can stick it in one gear or low gear so you can get – so you can go A, slower, and B, have a bit more traction because you're not going as fast. I think that's also what it was, what its main intent was for, too. Right. Yeah, there was a lot of um, different, different purposes because some cars will just have drive and then low, but you won't be able to select uh, any gear. It'll just go into the gear that the factory has set that gear to be in, so... I guess you could say low would be second gear. And then if you wanted to shift out of low, you would have to yeah. go back into drive. But uh, a lot of companies were toying with the idea of the, the plus mm -hmm. minus or button system. Now, I don't think GM really introduced that until somewhere into the 2010s, because I know a lot of the, the uh, auto manuals were on the shifter and it was either three, two, one yeah. wasn't plus or minus. But I don't really exactly know when they made the switch to buttons because all the all the cars made, you know, sometime in the teens were um, 
were all buttons. You know, there weren't, there wasn't any three, two, yeah, one anymore. Dad, it was all just buttons or, or you shift them. Um, if you go back to the podcast where I was introduced, I'll talk about that a bit, about my dad's truck and about myself too. Um, but my dad's truck, it has the auto manual option in it. And we have it in our truck. I think it's standard um, in most cars. Because if you're saying you have it in your car, if, like I, my mom's car has it too. And so I'm thinking it's pretty standard in most cars. But it's just, he can go from drive to manual with the buttons. He can shift manually. And, or he can go from drive, skip manual, and just put it right into first or second on the gear stick itself. He can also do go from drive to manual and then use the plus or minus buttons on the gear selector to put it in first or second or third, whatever gears he wants to put it in. But that's up to him. But I don't know. If, the one thing I don't know about that is if they show uh, what gear you're in on the dashboard because I haven't seen him. Uh, I haven't seen it on the dashboard saying like you're in third gear or you're in fourth gear, like whatever gear he's in. So. I don't know. Right. I think I think some vehicles, the earlier ones, like I was saying, three, two, one, you could see that on the dashboard. But for the plus minus system, I don't think in the earlier days of that, I don't think most cars showed on the dashboard which gear you were in. So you just have to yeah, take a best much, guess. I'm guessing, yeah. You have to take a best guess and just listen to your RPMs on which gear you're in. Like if you go straight to first, that'll kill your transmission. If you're going like 60 miles an hour, you put it straight in first. Good luck getting another transmission because you just killed yours. So, right, but that's what that's what one of the downfalls but, is your, your auto manual. You go 60, 70 miles an hour, stick it right in first gear if you want to. Your transmission is now toast, or whatever's in there is now toast because you mm -hmm. went from your engine is most likely going to be toasted or not toasted, destroyed earlier if you go from 70 miles an hour and in what, let's say, if it's a manual, let's say six gear, you're, in seven, you're going 70 miles an hour and you stick it right in first gear, your engine won't be able to, your engine's RPMs are just going to go through the roof and it's not going to be happy. It's, you're not going to be happy because you're going to be paying a pretty heavy garage uh garage fee for that to fix it because it's that'll put in a lot of damage right but whatever you use the automatic transmission for it could be uh you know just for casual driving to get the you know to have the feel of what a manual would feel like without the clutch yeah. or for braking or for going down you know, driving bad conditions there's a mm -hmm. lot of different uses for them and they're always good to have yeah, but not a lot of people use them. But moving on from the transmission, uh, apparently the three hundred has uh, a good cabin. You know, meaning that the cabin is very quiet. You know, you don't get a lot of road noise. You don't hear a lot outside. You know, anything that would be very, very loud. I guess you don't hear. I mean, maybe if it was a police fire, fire truck, or ambulance sign, you can hear it. But any just, you know. Uh, any noises from outside like a car going by or or uh, people walking on a sidewalk i don't think you'd be able yeah, you to hear 
you as much, you kind of more of the tires, basically. I guess that's what you're trying to say. Like, if you're driving, you can somewhat hear the hum of the tires. Yeah, because if your tires are bald, yeah, and even if your tires aren't bald, like you said, you can hear the hum. But I know mine were bald, and oh god, I had to put up with that for almost three years. Well, even I think it was even longer than that. The tires were just were were screaming, you know. And after I got rid of them and put new tires on, yeah, all gone. But like you said, you won't hear the road noise, you won't hear the tires uh, humming, and that's good. You know, you want a car that doesn't sound loud. Yeah. You want a car that's, that's nice what most and quiet. people want nowadays. I would think is a car that's that's somewhat quiet that you can't hear the road noise. Right, and. The 300 uh, is listed to have good interior space, so probably a lot of trunk space and probably a lot of cabin space, too, to just put, you know, groceries or whatever else you need, you know, like people, you know, there's probably a lot of leg room uh, between the seats or, you know, behind the seats in the back of the bench. There's probably a good amount of space to put your legs and probably in the front, too, there's a good, ena- good amount of space. It is a big vehicle. Yeah, it is. I call it the... Uh, I call it the but, Nowday uh, Land Yacht. That's what they called the 67 Impalas. Is the... I think that was probably its intention, just to be a big car. You know, somebody who wanted a nice family car, but a big yeah. land yacht, like you're saying. Because I know the... Now we I know on... the old Impalas, they were called... They're nicknames i guess were the land yachts because those things were huge like they were the size of a boat oh yeah i I could a lot of old cars were built to be big you know oh yeah the wagons were huge but these are land yachts with power steering (laughs) yeah which is good isn't that bad but power steering is i like it a lot more than manual steering I think everybody can say yeah. that about power steering, though. But now we'll move on to the bad. Uh, see, the bad. The first one's listed as intrusive but valuable electronic stability system. Now, that sounds more like a traction traction control type system. Maybe some type. To some me, type that sounds of, like uh, suspension. I'm, I'm not gonna say lane keep assist. That yeah, that sounds like suspension. It sounds like suspension. I wouldn't say it was lane keep because that's way too early for yeah, lane keep assist. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you and say that's more of a suspension type thing. It kind of tells you if you're losing traction, maybe or going on, you know, maybe a road that's really rough and it's yeah. telling you maybe to slow down. Now, let's see what's this one. Uh, no front grab handles. Uh, maybe they're talking about the steering wheel. Why would they put no steering wheel in there? Or maybe they're talking about. Oh, no, it says no front grab handles. I don't know what that. I thought that had something to do with the steering wheel. Oh, no front grab handles. Let me check. That's your. Um, if like if on trucks, they have they have those. You open the door, you look up onto that uh post that goes along the windshield there. Those are grab. Those are grab handles. Oh, that's right. 
Okay, yeah, I feel stupid now. Uh, I thought they were talking about on the steering wheel that there was they, there wasn't anywhere to they, they didn't have those uh, little areas where you could stick your hand in. So if you needed to, uh, if you like, if you were long driving long distance, your arms wouldn't get tired holding it at the yeah. three and eight o'clock position. But so and I feel stupid. Uh, I probably should have known what that was, but that's. That's actually kind of a bad quality, I'm going to say. That is that is a pretty good bad quality because it is a big car. And looking at the interior, let me get to pick up the interior again. It has, uh, of course, most modern cars now. In the front, they have bucket seats. But it looks like it would take – it would be a – what's the word? People, maybe older people like in their 60s or 70s that have a hard time getting around probably have a hard time getting in and out of the car. There. Just because it's kind of, yeah, and because the car looks like it's set up a little higher, yeah. you know, the suspension. Um, so that would be hard for someone up there in age and has problems getting around to get in and out. So that's I'm understandable. At the, the um, reviews now, and it says the this is the one thing that caught my eye the bad, somewhat unresponsive steering. So to me, that means. You're going around the curb and you start to turn the wheel. Those wheels are still going straight. Like that's what unresponsive steering right, means so. to me. <laughs> Your wheels are still going straight if you turn the wheel, and once you turn the wheel so hard, those wheels were the electronics in it, and that yes, and that's what would happen. They'll finally turn the wheels to follow you, and you'll get jerked to that side that you want to turn. So, or it just might be like right. every once in a while something like that happens. Like that's what mm-hmm. I thought of unresponsive steering. Like, really? Yeah, and that's never good. I mean, I'll probably get into this later, but uh, Chrysler's not known for the good quality, so that doesn't surprise older me cars, as much. Uh, their older cars are pretty good. I will say that because, granted, they're all older. Anything that's like, I would say, pre World War Two is good quality because it was all made. It was all made by hand. It was all from made in the U.S., not Chinese stuff. Granted, some stuff was made in China and shipped over, but that was stuff that was good quality from there. Granted, there is some stuff that is good quality from China today, but not all of it is good. You have to some good, there's some bad. So, mm-hmm. but uh, the last one is vulnerable front grill in parallel park. So what that basically means is the front grille is probably made out of plastic or some some uh, either aluminum, maybe, because aluminum is kind of soft, but it's either made out of plastic, aluminum, or some very, very, very mm-hmm. weak chrome. Um, what that means is that if somebody backs into you, the grille is more exposed than on another, like on other cars where it's more set back yeah. and the bumper uh, would catch, would, uh, would crush before the grill does but the since this grill kind of sticks out in front of the bumper uh well actually the grill the grill kind of is like part of the, the bumper grill is somebody pulled somebody, out it looks like it's getting ready to kiss you or something yeah the, car, the whole car is <laughs> yeah that's what it kind of looks like though so that's what they mean by front grill kind of sticks out you know somebody hits your the grill and the bumper you yeah. taken out i mean that grill is huge and it is made out of what looks yeah. like plastic so 
yeah, I would watch parking this thing, parallel parking this thing. But let's see. Now we're going on to the what to know section. Uh, comes like like Sam said before, he was reading the trims. Comes in rear or all wheel drive, which is again that's good. You have rear wheel, which gives you a lot more traction, and you have all wheel, where all wheels are spinning all the time. You can't yeah. turn it off. It also has a fuel saving front axle disconnect on all wheel drive models. That must hmm. mean. I guess what they mean is that there's an option. That must mean if you're low on gas, your front axle just stops working. I, I guess that's more of a, uh, like, like you said, if you're running low on fuel, and I guess it has a sensor where, where it coincides with the fuel gauge, and if it says you're low on fuel, I guess I guess it does dis the front axle, but only if you're low on fuel. I guess it does. I guess it won't uh, deactivate the front I've axle. Never heard of that. Know, not low. That's pretty in interesting. All my years I mean, or, in all the time that I've liked cars, mainly Chevy, Chevy, not being biased, not being biased, trying not to be biased. Pretty hard right. for me to do, but all the time that I've liked cars, I've never heard of fuel saving front axle dicks disconnect on system models on all-wheel drive models never heard of that yeah yeah, that that only engages when you're low on fuel that's what i'm guessing if you're if you have half a tank quarter tank and the uh low fuel uh alarm hasn't come on or or uh notification uh it won't it won't disconnect the front axle from spinning uh, this is actually, uh, this is probably one of uh, Chrysler's flops, but I haven't heard about this. I mean, there's a different thing. I, there's another video I did on the MDS that D- Dodge had, and I think Chrysler had too, where the, the one uh, about it would it would stop. Uh, what's the word? The MDS was basically, uh, you know, if you had a V8, the V8 Hemi. And you were just casually highway driving, and you were at a, uh, a certain speed. Uh, two pit, two pistons would stop, would stop producing power, and would just completely shut off. And only six pistons would be going. But if you hit the accelerator and started gunning it, the, the two pistons would kick back on again and start producing power. But that was a major flop, and I already covered that. Uh, that major flop of the MDS. It was a whole legal debacle with Chrysler. Yeah, I remember listening and they to really, that they podcast. Really... I remember, I, I get what you're saying, yeah. I remember that part of it. Like, with that, I don't understand So, that. I just hope to God. What, the MDS? Yeah, like, that's just wasting more fuel. If you don't have two pistons running, you're still mixing fuel. Your fuel injection, unless the computer shuts off those two cylinders... This fuel that's still no, being yeah, it's put designed... in there and still is being combusted but not ignited. So that's just a waste of fuel. Right. Well, how it worked is that the two injectors would cut off and then the two pistons would shut off. And then and then after that, if you, you applied throttle or throttle, the, the uh, computer would send would send a command to reactivate the two pistons and reactivate the fuel injector. But I don't know if the fuel, I don't know if it was the fuel injectors not engaging and the the uh, the pistons were just slowly killing themselves with with um, with with no uh, fuel to combust and they were just starting to burn up and you know becoming brittle or if the pistons were just 
were just causing internal damage to the uh, the uh, the piston valves or guides. Or... What would mainly happen? Yeah, the valve. What would make what I think would happen is if they shut the fuel off to those two pistons, but the engine's still running. Those two pistons are still going to be moving up and down in those cylinder walls, and they're most likely still be getting lubrication because the other half of the other uh, six pistons they're still running they're still creating oil pressure and all that so everything's still getting lubricated so the only thing that i can see happen is the valves moving up and down on the cylinder heads and all that moving up and down and it's still functioning right it's still being lubricated it's just not burning the fuel that's in there which would be which would to me that sounds like it's flooding those two cylinders with excess fuel that it doesn't need so why would you flood those two cylinders and then when you punch it, those two cylinders may be bogged down a bit because they have so much extra fuel in their cylinder walls that they have to burn off before they can get back to their normal uh, pace. Right. All I remember reading was that the the valves were, were just, the pistons were severely damaging the valves and that that would cause the, uh, if you were driving down the road, the pistons, the two pistons that would deactivate seized and you blow your engine up. That was what I heard, and a lot. It was it was a huge thing that happened. Chrysler really took a big blow with that. I bet. And if you've got just engines blowing up left and right, then you've got an issue. You've got a major recall. The only way to deactivate it is to have it sent to a me- mechanic to re to uh, delete the line of code that de- deactivates or uh, completely. I don't know if it was cancel or uh, override. No, it was override MDS, so it wouldn't activate if you were cruising at highway speeds, and the computer wouldn't shut off the injectors or the pistons. It can't shut off. And, the or pistons. you can do it yourself. You have to buy, and you have, or you would have to buy a three hundred dollar uh, programmer and do it yourself, where you just go on the internet, get a line of code that that cancels uh, MDS, so you wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. The only thing that it would, the computer would be able to shut off would be the fuel injection and then the spark, I would think. Because it can't shut off the, those two pistons. Like, it can't just say, these two pistons, um, not 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 move. It can't stop them from moving because those connecting rods are connected right to the crankshaft, which is spinning from those other six pistons. But Right. And this other what but... to know, I'm looking at, sorry to interrupt, but this other what to know, it says... Two V8s available. So what does that mean? You're getting two engines in one car, one in the trunk, one in the under the hood? Hey, more power, am I right? So you're basically running a v, V12 or 12 cylinders. Hey, I always say the more power, the better. No, I think what they mean by that is there are two variants of the V8. They have probably uh, the non-Hemi V8 <laughs> The uh, the Hemi V8, but hey, who wouldn't mind two engines? More power, maybe one for each axle. Yeah, who knows? that's what I'm thinking. You get the you get the front engine for the front axle, and you get a rear engine for the rear axle. Maybe, maybe. But and then the last thing I want to know, at least for me, is uh, electronic stability systems. So I think that has to do with um, uh, before when I mentioned that. All right, I think that has to do with more with uh, traction, maybe traction or launch control, something, something like that. But that's the end of what to know. And let's see. 
and here's the vehicle overview. So I will read through this, and then I think we'll move on to trim levels and see what trims what trims they offered in 2010 at least. Okay, so the 300C or just 300 uh, is essentially the Chrysler 300 with a Hemi V8 engine, among some other upgraded upgrades. The V6 powered 300 is listed separately in in the Cars.com research section. Like the 300, the 300C is available with regular and extended length versions, as well as with rear or all-wheel drive. Include the Cadillac CTS, Ford Taurus, and Chevrolet Impala. A high-performance SRT8 edition comes equipped with a 424, 425 horsepower V8. Okay, so I'm just going to stop real quick. That answers your question about the two variants. So apparently there's the RT variant, and the SRT8 variant, with the which of course the SRT8 comes with the comes stock with 425 horsepower, which is about 330 horsepower. Not no, 130 horsepower more than the SRT8. Yeah. Oh no, the 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 RT. I'm sorry, I got my trim level screwed up. So the SRT8 is more of the the highest the highest trim you can get in this in this variant of of the uh the v8 meaning that it's the highest performance and it it's it's comes faster from factory so you won't have to do as many modifications if you don't want to but it's only offered in regular length rear wheel rear wheel drive form so you can't get it in extended with uh all wheel drive You, you couldn't do that in 2010 if you wanted to and let's see the exterior uh, looking bold and imposing. The 300 C packs more luxury and power than other 300 miles. This stretched versions extra length comes just behind the B pillar resulting in longer back doors. Uh, let's see the bullet points uh, standard Chrome door handles, standard 18 inch Chrome clad aluminum wheels, uh, Chrome grill and 20 inch aluminum wheels on heritage edition. Standard rain-sensing windshield wipers. Oh, okay. So they had uh, sensors in the windshield wipers. So this was kind of, I guess you could say, the the turning point for when the, just the digitization of everything, you know? They put sensors in the windshield wipers, which is completely unnecessary, but of course they did it anyway. Yeah. And lastly, the interior... Uh, the instruments have a watch face style, and 300C drivers get a steering wheel with leather accents. The standard driver mode, which is part of the information display, tells the driver when the engine is operating in four-cylinder mode. Again, that is the MDS system. Uh, that was what I was talking about uh, when I said they cancel. Uh, if it's an eight-cylinder car, it'll cancel two cylinders, and it will just run in six-cylinder yeah. mode. So that, that, that was what I was talking about. And uh, standard features include power tilt telescoping steering wheel. What? Wait, standard features include power tilt. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got a little confused there. Power tilt telescoping steering wheel with a memory feature, dual zone automatic climate control, premium leather seat trim, an auto dimming rear view mirror, steering wheel audio controls, and a home link universal remote, which is for the garage door, of course. Let's see. And that's about it. So now we will move on to the uh, trim levels and check those out.
So, let's see. Where's the base? Oh, here it is. Is this the V? Wait. Oh. Oh, they all come in V8s. They all come in V6s. Okay. They do come in V6s? They all come in V6s from what I'm saying. Oh, uh, I think you're looking at a different trim than I am. I'm looking at the C. I'm looking at Wait, the thought... just normal 300. Oh. Well, I don't think mo- – I think most of it doesn't change. I think it's just there's – I think it's just the engine more of a... type. Yeah, the engine, and I think it just has leather seats in this one. Yeah. I might be mistaken, but I guess I'm just reading from the sport model, the C. But I don't think – yeah. I don't think much changes from the the 300 as the base trim. This is the trim. I don't know. I'm just going to say the Chrysler 300C is a variant of the 300 and not really a trim level. I guess the C is supposed to have all the V8 trims and no V6. And then the 300 is just supposed to be the family car V6. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm doing the C, so I'll have to put that in the title. But uh, the sport trims it comes in is the 300S V8, which is the most common sport sport trim because it's the cheapest, of course. Th- start At 2010, it started at $38,000. Um, there's no mile per gallon estimate here. Just, yeah, it's not listed, unfortunately. It's not listed for any of these, but this one comes with a 360 horsepower, 5.78 liter V8, which is not the Hemi. That's just the 5.7 liter V8 with no hemispherical combustion technology. Uh, I don't even think it lists it here. Well, maybe, maybe it does, or I, one of these trims, do I know? Oh, I know it does. It has its own trim. Okay, so yeah, the this one does not. This one just, yeah, I just realized that. I thought they were just listed in the engine part, but thanks for catching that, though. But it's uh, has a five-speed automatic. Dri- Gosh, I can't speak. Five-speed automatic. Five-speed with the auto manual in it. Overdrive. Yeah, it also has oh yeah auto manual and overdrive. I didn't know how overdrive. Huh. Okay. So yeah, like like Sam said, auto manual and it has overdrive. And this one is rear wheel drive. Uh, okay, yeah, this is the one that's actually rear wheel drive, and it comes in black, gray, white, or inferno red crystal. Uh, and it has this. Of course, they all have five seats. They, they always see. have to well, put weird one, paint names on them. I don't I don't get it with the weird paint names. Inferno red crystal pearl code. I mean, that just looks like. That's just rumor. It just seems like a really over glorified um, color name. Color name. I mean, who, why? Who would you go up to and say uh, if they asked what color your car is? Would you just say Inferno Red Crystal? Personally, I would. I mean, no, you, I would just say it's red. It's red. It's not Inferno Red Crystal. Crystal. Hold on, I want to see what they call white. Bright white. Okay, that's not too weird. Bright silver metallic. Okay. And then black clear coat. Huh. I don't know what it is with these colors, man. They just give it all these weird colors. Okay. Now, we're on to the Hemi trim. So this is the one that has the hemispherical V8 5.7 liter engine. Now, 
you can tune these engines to run um, E E ninety five. I think it is. I don't know. I, I know there's. I, you can either run E ninety five or E ninety three, but you have to tune your car to get any real performance out. Are of you it. talking about uh, different it, types of gas or? Yeah, I'm talking about the octane ratings because a lot of people what they do is they have the uh, the digital handheld programmers. Mm-hmm. And they'll go onto a, a site that they that the program they, they buy a program from the site. The site sells lines of code, not sells, but that you can uh, put the lines of code onto your handheld programmer, and you can uh, run different different octane grades. Like if you wanted to run E ninety five E ninety three, yeah. If you wanted to run that, if you wanted to run E E ninety five octane uh, E ninety three. Yeah, 95 octane, or you wanted to run um, 93, you could, but if you want any real performance out of it, you would have to tune it to what the code the code they give you on the site, and you'd have to put it on the handheld programmer and load it on your car. And that takes anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes to do. But you'd have to run that grade of gas. So you couldn't run 85 if you wanted, to, if the, you know, like regular. You'd have to run 93 or 95. Yeah. Um, but, but all these, all these are, are, uh, except for the SRT eight are you can run unleaded straight gas in there, mm-hmm. you know, like E 85, but this one, the Hemi, you can run straight gas. Uh, let's see. So this one starts at the same price as the, the base V eight or not the base V eight now, uh, as the 38. 38- 300s it runs at the same price thirty eight thousand dollars in 2010 it has the 360 horse horsepower 5.7 liter v8 okay so it's basically just the uh the 300s but with the exception of having a hemispherical combustion engine yeah they're basically so that seems like they're just basically taking the same car just different engine and that's it yeah just a different different engine and that's different it. paint color and yeah, that that exactly. They have different paint colors. Uh, what the hell is this one? Dark Cordovan. What? Uh, pearl coat. Okay. I like brilliant Dark black Titan. crystal pearl coat. What is that? Brilliant. Where, where do they get all these color names for the deep water blue? Oh, of course, deep water blue. What's this one? White gold clear coat. Yeah. Stone white. Where are they? Dark Cord- Cordovan? Good God. Cordovan. Um, these colors are insane. Just just say purple, red, Green, blue. whatever. I don't know. Dark titanium. Green. Metallic. I don't know. Why? Th- these colors make no sense. I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not talking, they're talking in tongue, really. Ugh. Anyway, God. Now we go on to the base, which I'm not even going to read again, except for the price, which is about $2,000 more. It's $40,000. i am not going to read through it again because it's exactly the same thing as the 300S. It runs straight gas. It's got the 5.7 V8 in it. The one thing that I uh, see with the, with the 300S V8, the Hemi, and the base model is the Hemi and the 300S, they're $38,000 and $38,010. $38,010. Yeah. 
why do they just add that ten dollars in there? It's like thirty. It it sounds so much better with if you just say thirty eight thousand dollars. Not not like somebody's gonna come up to you and say, "How much was that car? Thirty eight thousand and ten dollars." Like that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And then you go down to the base model. It sounds so much better if you just say forty thousand dollars, not forty thousand fifty dollars. Like really? Yeah. That- it just it sounds really weird when people when I, they they do prices like this they they do forty thousand dollars forty thousand fifty dollars it makes no sense it, it really it doesn't. there's no need to add that extra fifty or extra ten but the only variant on the base is that it's all wheel drive which is confusing because why didn't they just make it available in the Hemi or the three hundred S all wheel drive why did you have why do you have to buy the base with exactly the same engine minus the V eight and all wheel drive it, it makes no sense. It's it's really confusing if you think about it. Yeah. And then we move on to the final trim, which is actually different and has I think the the only thing that remains the same is the transmission for all these. The transmission does not the transmission change. Transmission and then the drivetrain. The drivetrain, three out of the four of them are rear wheel drive. One of them, which was the base, which was the all wheel drive. But this one is surprising. It has a four hundred and twenty five horsepower. 6.1 liter V8 premium. It has to take premium gas in it. So you're going to pay that more money right. for a more expensive car. That's $44,865. Just make it $44,000. Yeah, I, just put the three zeros there. It's not like you're making $800 more off this car. I mean, there's no need to do that. I mean, of course, they're adding up every little bit they put into it, and then they don't they don't just put zero zero zero. They have to put eight hundred and sixty five or some crazy number. You just put the three zeros. That's it. I mean, you're only you're only going to make eight hundred dollars less. I mean, is that really that big a deal though? Yeah. Well, what we might or what it might be doing is it might be saying this is this price with these options. We might not be seeing the options. That may be one thing. That's maybe why these numbers are a bit odd. But, or it may be that what's that's what the number is off the showroom floor. We have no idea. I'm pretty sure price is determined by the manufacturer, and then if the dealer wants to, they can adjust the price for what they want. They want to sell it for because a lot of the vehicles on the showroom floors are owned by uh, banks. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're owned by banks, so you know, the uh, the bank will buy it for a certain price unless they buy it at the manufacturer's price. And then they'll they'll give it to the dealer, saying you got you move this you move this unit, we'll give you a commission on it, and we'll take the rest. Yeah. So that's I think why it's kind of a weird number. Yeah, because they have to in- include the bank with it. But with this SRT eight, with the SRT eight. The only thing that's different is your engine. That's really it. The engine and the price. And that, like all yeah. the other ones, there's the 360 horsepower, uh, 5.7 liter V8. This one, the 425 horsepower, 6.1 liter V8. With that takes premium gas. That's the only thing that's really different between all these cars and the prices, and then your color differences, and then uh, the three out of the four of them. Or three of them are rear wheel drive. One of them is all wheel drive. That's the only. Those are the only differences that I see. I don't know about you, but that's what I see in it. 
Yeah, I mean, the only like you said, the only thing different is that it has a bigger engine. That's really about it. Everything else is the same. The only thing I would think is that just interior, you know, maybe it has leather seats or upgraded leather racing seats. Uh, maybe stitching or something, or maybe something, something. So I'm thinking something more fancy. technological. Maybe it has a better. Uh, maybe it has a better media control center. I don't know. Yeah. Or, or it might have. Um, oh God, it was just right on my tongue. It, they may do the bigger engine in this because it's a sports car. Most likely, they're probably they probably made this trim type because they want this trim to be like a sporty type of car instead of like your basic and your normal V8 and your Hemi like that. Like this may be your rich man's sports car, and your Hemi may be your low profit or your low income man's uh, sports car. So that's what they're probably doing is they're probably just making a sports uh, uh, type of sports car for like higher income people or lower income people. That's what I've gotten out of this SRT8 uh, specs out of it. But they're all different. All, all manufacturers are different. You can't make them do the same. If they were the same, your prices would be... Uh, like I could buy a car for like three dollars if all the cars were the same from the same manufacturer, same thing every car. Like that would be pretty nice, mm-hmm. yes, because all the parts would be universal, but the prices on those cars would be astronomically low. Right, and you gotta also take into consideration this car comes fast from factory with already four hundred and twenty-five horsepower. So yeah, really. You don't have to add that much more. I mean, if you want to go to 500, you could, but there's really no need to go any further than that because it, you've ar- you're already going fast from factory, and you're already running 93 or 95 octane in the in the tank. So there's really not that much more need to go any faster. I mean, if you wanted to really work on your car and you want to build it up to what you want it to be. I you go for one of the lower trim ones like the RT. Well, in this case, they don't have the RT. It's just either the Hemi or the 300S or the base, and you can build it up to what you want it to be. But even those are still fast from factory. It's six 360 horsepower, so you're not really doing that much uh, to it because it's already the all these models trim lines are pretty fast from factory. Yeah. I mean, you could, like I said, you could still do stuff to all the, the other three trims, the base, Hemi, and 300 S V8, but SRT8, you really don't need to go any faster. Yeah. And it's really all preference, yeah. too. If you want more power, you can do more power. That's up to you. It's all about what you prefer, if you want more power or if you don't. Right. And, I mean, that kind of ends it with this. I mean... This is kind of like the thoughts and opinions now. So, what what are your thoughts on the 2010 Chrysler 300? I'm being brutally honest. Ugly. Mm-hmm. That, that, like, you look up the pictures at them. Like, with the colors that they give you, you may be able to make it look good. But with most of the colors, like blue, black, gray, white, red, purple, green... It's just it'll it'll just look ugly. Like you can get better looking cars that aren't a, the newer day land yachts that look better, 
granted, they may be for much more price or they may be for a lower price. It's all about if you have the money or if you don't. And it's all about what car you like. If you like Chevy, Ford, uh, Hyundai, GM, Chrysler, Dodge, all those different cars. You have the choice. You can do whatever you want. It's your money, your life. Do what you want. But preferably, my opinions, my thoughts, ideas about it. What they can do, what they should do is they should update the body on it. Like, really? It doesn't look good at all. It really doesn't. So, um, but that's just my thing. Like, why make a car look not so good when you can make it look a bit better? Yeah, and if you look at the 2020, they didn't really change the body that much. They just kind of made it a little bit more aerodynamic, but it still looks exactly the same as as it was from 2010. So, yeah. What are I your mean, thoughts on it? Well, I normally criticize uh, Chrysler a lot, and I'm going to criticize them again just because... Um, just go for it. Just go for it. Yeah, I normally take the filter off when I criticize Chrysler and Ford. So I'm just going to take the filter off and just be upfront about this car. This reminds me of the Charger that I covered. I, uh, did I show? No. No, yeah, I think I covered the Charger. Uh, yeah, I think you did, yeah. It was either that or I did the police package. I don't know. It was one of those. But this is has exact exact tech that the 06 Chargers had. And it was all terrible. And I'm going to say why. MDS, I already covered, and I already said it in this episode, but the MDS, total flop, and they put it in this. So, And I think they put it in a bunch of cars, but this specifically, complete flop. I don't even know where to begin with this because it, it failed. It, it, there's no, you can't turn it off unless you pay a mechanic a crazy amount of money to, turn, to override it, or you have to buy a $300 uh, scan tool. No. A three hundred dollar uh, code reader, uh, and then do it yourself, which is still expensive. So there's really no escaping it, and, and it's also time consuming. Yeah, it's every it consumes so much time. Just and even if you go to the the dealership, they're gonna try and upsell you with all this other crap. Oh, your brake fluid's back here is looking dark. Oh, your power steering's looking dark. You gotta fix this right now, or else your car's gonna blow up. So I don't. I, I that's just that's crazy to me. I think that they. The MDS is a complete flop, and why they put it in the Chrysler 300 is beyond me. I mean, I, I just think that's so stupid. And they have the – of course, this is the Chrysler engines we're talking about. They have the Hemis and the VAs that they sell. And I'm going to say this as insulting as I can, but the V8 they have is crap. I mean, you don't even have to beat on this thing for it to take – so much wear and tear. This thing just wears out like you're driving every single day. I mean, if you do drive every single day, it's going to wear out faster. But these engines are always they're not blowing up all the time. They have so many issues. You know, you don't even reach 100,000 miles, and these things already start having issues, you know. Uh, for instance, oh, the, uh, the the piston rings are going bad. I remember hearing about that a little bit. Yeah, you get um, some blow by with some oil seeping by the piston rings, and those, that fouls up your spark plugs, and you don't get good ignition on those. You're you're screwed there. That's a loss of power automatically because your spark plugs are fouled. You don't get a good spark. You're losing power there. And you're right. burning Wire oil. harnesses are cheap. They're, they're, they're cheap crap. I mean, 
you look at these wire harnesses and they're, they're all, they get all brittle. It's not even, it hasn't even been four years and they're already starting to fall apart. I mean, yeah. everything, and that's the one problem with these V8 engines. When you make a V8 engine, people are, of course, going to beat the heck out of it because it's a sports car. Yeah. A, a muscle car, I should say. Well, something's just like a lower trim. The SRT8 is a muscle, but uh, the RT, well, not the RT, the Hemi and the base and the 300S are kind of sport in between of muscle and sport. If you, if you modify it a little bit, it would be a muscle car. But at the moment, when you buy it, it's a sports, really more of a sports car. Um, but they, these things are going to get the hell beat out of them. But Chrysler thinks that that's not going to happen. So they build these cars as cheap as they can. The cheap parts, cheap, cheap, they manufacture the engines cheap. They buy, they have cheap parts that go in the engine. Everything about the engine is completely cheap. And yeah. before you even hit 60,000, before you even hit 30,000 miles, it's already having problems and breaking down. I could go on forever with the list of problems. You know, the axle. I remember seeing some new stuff going on with the new the Ram trucks. The axles are falling off down the highway, which is completely dangerous. But the old V8 engines in these from 2010 are always breaking down. They're having so many problems. They're getting recalled 20, all the time. There's, they're, uh, they're not. They're just very poorly made, and that has to go with the uh, the. The bail before the bailout and even after the bailout, they just after Fiat acquired them, Fiat touched Chrysler and it turned it into this really cheap manufacturing car brand. I mean, they were already going downhill before Fiat bought them, but Fiat bought them and then the Italians got their hands on the car and all hell broke loose. Yeah. I know I said this before, but Italians keep your hands off cars, keep them making the food. Don't have to make the freaking cars, okay? When you let Italians make cars, they screw up everything. They use the cheapest cars. They don't even manufacture them right. And they break down before they even hit 20,000 miles. Yeah. That's the problem. I've seen so many videos of people who have these Chrysler products and Dodge products breaking down before they even – before they're even fully broken in, these things are breaking down. Yeah. You know – that's the problem with these V8s, that they're poorly built. They're not able to take the beating that they're supposed to, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's part. That's pretty much Chrysler's fault, now Fiat Chrysler. But enough with the engine. I, I can go on for hours with that. Yeah. And what was the other thing? Uh, a lot of the, uh, the tech that they put in it, because Chrysler's competing in a competitive market. Well, starting to get it to a competitive market. But Chrysler kind of had the... Um, the advantage because they were they their older cars from you know 2006 already had some new tech state of the art tech so they were already getting a good name for having some pre revolutionary tech in the cars and some of the other companies like GM and Ford were behind on that so they had to step up their game but since Chrysler was in the lead they didn't really have to do too much to attract the attention of new buyers but with all that tech after so many after so much use all the wiring gets so brittle and all the technology starts failing. And the way they had everything set up is that if one thing goes, the entire system shuts down and it could take weeks or months to either get the part or to diagnose what's wrong. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all just, that falls back to all that mainly that runs right back to the main hurting on that. I guess you could say is cheap made parts. That's it. Parts that are made cheaply. 
that's that's your main issue. Any part that's made cheaply will most likely fail. Granted, you could do get some expensive parts that do fail here and there, but how many expensive parts have you heard that fail? You don't hear too many that do that. You mainly hear all the cheap, ex- cheap, not expensive parts that fail. That's mainly their issue. You get those cheap, expensive parts or those cheap parts that are expensive somewhat, and they fail. They're just pieces of crap. Right. All, and like I said, all these parts are not made in America. They're all outsourced. Everything's just manufactured here. Yeah. So after time, all the wiring harnesses, the wires, and and the tech that they put in it, it all goes bad. And once it does, the entire car shuts down. And that's just the way it's manufactured. It's manufactured where one thing one thing goes out, the entire car turns off. And that that is that's, that's terrible engineering. Because that, that shouldn't happen. If one thing goes, the car should keep going. It shouldn't just turn off and not start. That, that's really bad engineering on the, uh, the manufacturer's part. I think that they should have set it up where if one thing goes, there should be a warning that comes on telling you that it went and just not shut off. Yeah. Because that's, that's insane. I yeah. mean, but like I said, a lot of these Chrysler product, products don't even make it – start having problems – right after they're broken or right even before they're broken. So that's why I like to avoid Chrysler products a lot because their stuff just isn't made that great. It's, it's made to not last. It's, it's, it's not good quality. Everything they make it is everything they make it with is cheap outsourced plastic crap from all over the place. And their engineer and their manufacturing is not good. The way they engineer them is not good. The way they design them is not good. I'm going to say this, though. Some of the things they produce do look good, but coming from Chrysler, nobody wants to buy it because they know it's going to break down. So yeah. would I recommend this vehicle to anybody? No, I would not recommend this vehicle or any Chrysler product for that matter to anybody. Neither would because I. Knowing I, I the don't want to recommend this. Yeah, no, we, def- we both definitely don't recommend this in any way because – I've seen – you can even just look up videos right now on YouTube about cars, these these 300s that barely even have 30,000 miles, and they're already starting to have problems. That's the risk you take with these is that you look at this, how much horsepower it ha- has, and you get all psyched up, but then you look at the history it has, and you're really, you're really kind of start, starting to second-guess whether you should get it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my opinion. And like like we said, we do not recommend this this bad car. It's a bad car. So I guess we finally finished the three hundred, and it, it was a pretty pretty good review, I would say. And yeah. now I now we'll move into the uh, question and answer. So uh, we have a question from uh, my my cousin Evan Evan Cortez. He asked, "Which country produces the best cars?" Um, I guess well, that's we'll both a difficult answer. one. And yeah, you're right. That is kind of difficult. It's kind of hard to say. Like the U.S., we we do produce cars, yes, but we don't make all the parts here. Most of them are manufactured in China and shipped over here, and we assemble them. Right. So you can't really say that. U.S. is the best thing. Like it's kind yeah. of 
difficult, I guess, because most of the parts are manufactured in China, shipped over here, assembled, and then sold. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how it goes. So it's kind of like a 50-50 with half China, half U.S., because you can't, if without China, the U.S. wouldn't be making cars. Right, because they, they make a majority of our parts for our cars. Yeah. But I will say this. Um, Toyota and Honda are both Japanese brands. And yeah. those things are known to go forever. Oh, yeah. So I would have to say possibly Japan. I would probably say Japan produces some of the best cars because they're known to just keep going. I mean, there are a lot of Chevys that I've seen, like the older Suburbans. They go forever. Yeah, I they mean, do. Yeah. I would have to go with you on depends. Japan, though, because they last forever, basically. Like, I, I do like my Chevys. Yes, I do like them. But they're really not – most of those parts aren't really made in the U.S. They're made in China, shipped over here, manufactured, put together, whatever. Japan, they're made there, put together there, shipped over here, and sold. So I'd have to go, go with you on Japan cars. Yeah, and I say that because I don't mean to sound, you know, like a political geopolitical analyst, but China is a communist country. So a lot of their stuff is made on the cheap because, you know, China doesn't want to spend a lot of money and they know they have a control on America because America is basically, you know, the one who's, who's the primary buyer of parts. I mean, Europe is too, but, you know, they kind of have America where they want it because a lot of their parts are cheap. And America buys is buying the cheap parts because you know it's it's cheaper to manufacture overseas in China than it is to produce domestic. So they'd rather yeah. get the, the crappy parts in China and have them sent over here than spend the extra money having manufactured here and then have them put in the cars or in Japan. But Japan, mm-hmm. on the other hand, is a um, uh, what's the word? Uh, it's uh, oh dang it. I can't remember what it was. My brain is fried. Okay. Mars Friday. Japan is a... Uh, what is it? Damn it, I can't think of the word. I'm I know what it is. government, I... so don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's not a problem. It's better that you aren't, but... Because everything that's going on is crazy, but... Japan is a... Um, Damn, we are too, and I can't remember. I was saying it today too. They're good car builders. Let's just say that. Yeah, they're good car manufacturers. They, the cars they produce have a good reputation, even the older ones, because Japan after World War Two, well before World War Two they were a communist country, and they they were kind of like China. You know, they were sending parts over here, and they were really terrible parts. But then China became a a um a capitalist country. That was what I was looking for. I knew again we'll see. Japan went capitalist. I think I just said China. No. China's communist, Japan's capitalist. Meaning that when they went capitalist, they didn't they didn't, they weren't communist, so they weren't, you know, they weren't they weren't valuing uh what is it? They weren't they weren't valuing quantity over quality. So then they went from valuing quantity over quality to quality over quantity. So so with that, uh, with being a capitalist country, they started producing better vehicles because 
their work, they, they better train their workforce. And America kind of restructured them to be more of a capitalist country to produce better cars than terrible cars. Yeah. So Japan started making all these cars with their own parts, domestic parts. They had they made they made them well. They had very very strict quality control. So if there was any problems that they found with the cars or any faults in design, they go back to the drawing board, do it again. So yeah. with that, they produced good cars and had a good name for themselves. With their good name of cars being literal tanks and just lasting forever, people bought were buying Toyos and Hondas more. Because they had a better rep. So that's why Honda and Toyota are a very good name. And Japan is one of the best name in cars because they value quality over quantity. And they have very strict quality control. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and that that answers that. Japan is probably the best country to produce. That's probably the the country that produces the best cars. Yeah. My, in my opinion. I'd have to agree with you um, on that one because look at their cars. They're lasting a lot more than the U.S. cars. But I do like the U.S. cars, yes, but I'll have to go with you on Japan because they are lasting a lot more. Which is true. I mean, America does have some good designs, but of course, you know, Japan, their cars last a lot longer. Yeah. All right, so we have another question from our co-host, Sam, and he asked, what is your opinion on Chevy trucks? Now, let's see. I'll let you handle this one since I asked it. <laughs> yeah, I know, so I'll, I'll have this 100% me. Now, I'm a big GM guy, okay? I really, really like GM, okay? I, Pontiac, Chevy, Cadillac, and all that. It's all good stuff, but I will have to critique Chevy on the new trucks because like like Ford and Chrysler, their quality's slipping a little bit. I've, I haven't heard too much bad about their trucks, but I'm starting to hear a little bit about the quality slipping. So my opinions are kind of mixed on this on this topic of new Chevy trucks. But old Chevy trucks, on the other hand, I would have to say they're pretty good quality. Uh, I believe that back then they were still sourcing most of their parts domestic or to source them from Japan or a country with good quality control. But the older ones, I've heard a lot, a good, good, a lot of good things about, you know, they last a long time. They're made with good quality. I've heard a lot about that. And I would have to say the older ones are probably a little bit better than the newer ones, but the newer ones are still okay. I just think personally, they should just, I mean, I, even though they won't, but they should include a trim with just less tech, just a standard radio and maybe a couple analog sensors. That's it. And maybe just a little bit of computer computer equipment, and that's about it. But I would have to say that the older ones last longer, like the Japanese cars. I think it, I think GM should have kept st- st- stayed steady in valuing qual- qual- quality over quantity. But now they kind of are starting to va- are starting to go the direction of Ford and Chrysler a little bit. They haven't fully gone that direction, but they're starting to slip, unfortunately. Yeah. But honestly, I'm going to say that the older ones are tanks and are probably like Japanese cars. Yeah. So definitely, I would say that the older Chevy trucks are the best. Pre-2009. I think the ones that were made before 
2013 are probably the best because after that, they just really started going full tech. So anything before 2013, still still good. I would recommend an older Chevy truck before 2013. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And my last question that I got was from old friend back home in New Jersey, Thomas Dugan. Uh, he asked me, uh, or us, I should say, since I'm not just hosting the show anymore, uh, what are the best aftermarket brakes? Now, I don't know if you want to answer this, but I'm not sure if you know any good quality brakes. Uh, I don't know off the, I don't know some good quality brakes off the top of my head. Um, but I'm going to have to say, I've heard some of them. I think they're called sticky brakes, I think. I don't quite know. Um, just Googling that now. So let's see. Let's see what Google says, what the best brakes are. I'm going to have to go with like, uh, thinking, no, uh, oh, good God. I think I'm going to have to go with like Napa brakes, in my opinion. I don't know what my mechanic uses on my dad's cars and things like that for our brakes or anything. But that's what I'm going to have to go with because that's what I'm used to is those brakes that are on our cars. Right. Yeah, that's not bad. I mean, Napa's a good brand. I haven't used Napa parts in forever just because I don't have any Napa shops near me. I know that there was one back home, but you are right now. So I just Googled overall what the best brake pads are, and they're saying best brake, best overall. AC Delco, they're professional ones, they're front disc pad sets, best for heavy-duty vehicles. Uh, best for heavy-duty vehicles are your power shop, power stops, and then um, your uh, high-performance vehicles, they're saying power stops, your Z26-1053. So that's what they're saying. So. Yeah. And I think I'd have to agree with him. Any, like, from Napa or, or uh, Advanced Auto Parts, uh, I don't remember the autos or AutoZone, uh, those type of aftermarket brakes. I think they sell OEM, too, but if you buy brakes from them, that, they're not bad. They're still pretty good quality, I would say. But yeah. my personal opinion, if you're looking for aftermarket brakes, uh, I guess more, I don't want to say well-known. I want to say more of a... Uh, stuff that the muscle car owners, the ricers, and the sports car drivers buy are, uh, I think the personal best are maybe Wildwood brakes. And I'm not saying that just because I have a house down there and I go down there a lot. I'm just well, saying heard, that because I've heard good things too about Wildwood brakes. So, yeah, I just, I just think that they, the one thing that they don't do right is that they don't have, uh, brakes for a lot of models. They haven't, more for muscles, muscle cars, sports cars, and ricers. That's, that's I think, the target demographic they cater to. I don't think mm-hmm. they're catering to the average Joe, which is okay. I mean, it's okay to just cater to them because they're more, I guess, sportier brakes than regular OEM ones. Yeah. I still have the OEM ones on mine, and they work, they work fine. They stop on a dime. But I guess for aftermarket ones, since this was a question about aftermarket brakes, I would have to go with Wildwood or, or really any brakes from an auto parts store, you know, like Napa, AutoZone, or, or Advanced Auto Parts. 
those are still good too. But if you're asking on a question about sports cars or muscle cars, I would say go with the Wildwood ones. Yeah. Those are probably only for looks, but I think they're probably the best, honestly, because they got a good name. Yeah. Well, that ends the questions. I don't, I don't think I got any other questions other than that. So I guess that ends the, the end of the marks the end of this episode. Yep, it sure does. Well, I'm Giovanni with SS Central. I'm Sam with SS Central.